This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Good afternoon and welcome to Ali at Berkeley's Wednesday Lunchtime Speaker Series. Today we're excited to have Kate O'Neill with us. Kate is a professor in the Department of Environmental Science, Policy, and Management at UC Berkeley. She holds a PhD in political science from Columbia and was a postdoc fellow at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. She's written three books, Waste Trading Among Rich Nations, Building a New Theory of Environmental Regulation, The Environment and International Relations, and most recently, Waste, from which today's talk, The New Global Politics of Waste, derives. Her research interests are broad, and the collaborations she has undertaken have yielded impressive results, including a recent interview on NPR's Fresh Air. We're fortunate to have her with us today. Please join me in welcoming Kate O'Neill. All right. All right, thank you, Matt. Oh, good, the mic's on for that lovely introduction. That first very clunky book title was, in fact, my dissertation. Uh, This one is just called Waste, (laughs) which um, demonstrates the fact that my career has progressed since then. Okay, Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about pieces of the book today, um, but also connecting it in to this broader theme about how wastes are so globalized. How I would not just waste, but generically the things we throw away that may or may not still have value and certainly have afterlives after we get rid of them. Uh, One of my, um, the themes and one of the things I I try to do is to show to people how even though we think we put things out on the curb and never really think about them again, they in fact go through entire life cycles. They may have value, they may not. They may travel the globe, they may not. But I think it's becoming increasingly important to think about what we throw away, where it goes, what value it has, and also what costs or risks it might be imposing on other people around the world. So I'm going to illustrate some of this by focusing on how a decision made in Beijing in 2017 changed how and what people in Berkeley and many other communities around the world recycle. And even our daily practices of buying coffee, tea, other Um, takeaway foods and and soft drinks are also, those practices are starting to change, partly as a result of this decision. But before I get to that, just a little bit of of sort of flavor of of where I'm coming from. Again, this theme that all waste is global. What we throw away has value. What we throw away often travels the globe, and that's not just sort of the, the things we know about, like electronic wastes, but also plastics, as I'll talk mostly about today, but also things like cars, used cars, secondhand cars, clothes, bikes, even discarded food uh, will actually travel some other country, someplace where it may or may not be used. What we throw away provides a livelihood to millions 
around the world. The profession of waste picking is indeed one of the oldest, perhaps actually the oldest profession. Um, the way that people have made livelihoods from time immemorial by collecting waste, by digging through piles of waste and selling it on. Uh, it's estimated that there are about um, 20 million informal waste pickers, waste workers around the world. And you'll see them even here in this um, part of the world as people collect cans off, um, off the street to sell and engage in other sorts of pickup and recycling activities. I think the more you think about it, the more you notice how we live in a local, a fairly thriving local waste economy that is magnified to the rest of the planet. But on the same time, while I talk about value and resources, uh, what we throw away is still piling up in landfills and waterways and other parts of the world, everywhere. And it has many associated um, and somewhat magnified risks as wastes have globalized. So just this is the, you know, just to introduce just briefly, this is my new book. And these are the themes that I look at starting from this um, assumption, this, this understanding that all wastes are global. But also, this book appeared in a series called Resources from Polity Press. And this is just a series of short, fairly accessible books that all have this great one-word title and brightly colored uh, covers that are about sort of, uh, food and timber and oil and coltan and fish and all of these traditional resources. And in fact, the, the sort of basis of the series is to say, well, all the resources on this planet are coming under a lot of pressure through globalization, resource extraction, and so on. And therefore, we need to look at them. Well, I found myself thinking that I've actually got the only resource on the planet that's actually expanding. So this is quite an exciting way to think about how waste becomes a resource and a resource frontier. As we run out of virgin resources, companies, even large multinational mining companies, are turning to the reservoirs of value that are contained in piles of waste and extracting the value from them and, and selling that on. Um, so it is, in this sense, a new resource frontier. As I mentioned already, there are many um, risks still involved with waste, even as we think about it as something of, of value, and that those have been magnified by this very globalization and by the increase in amount of waste we produce. Uh, some of the landfills that exist around the world are many thousands of acres, and hundreds of people each year can be killed in waste slides. This is, this is a very serious issue. Uh, things like piled up old tires can catch fire and burn for months and be visible from outer space. Uh, the, the plastics that we're very concerned about right now, and which I'll talk about again, travel the world, and they've been found as they break down in not only all parts of the ocean, including the deep seabed, but also in marine life, and also in our own um, tissue and blood and other parts of our bodies. So again, that is a, a magnified risk that we didn't really understand when we started our, our, our love affair with plastics back in the 1950s. And because what I study is global environmental politics and governance, of course, understanding waste on, in these new ways as a globalized resource, as um, a globalized resource frontier with all these massive globalized risks, of course, means that we have to rethink how we govern and regulate wastes. Not, again, as this sort of end-of-pipe thing, which all we have to do is pick it up and make sure it's disposed of safely, but we have to think about, well, the fact that these, these things do travel the planet, they are exploited for resources everywhere. Every time we've tried to stop 
The waste trade, like people have tried to ban the electronic waste trade, it has failed dismally. So we need to work out, well, how do we work with those new realities? And um, hopefully I'll get to some of that towards uh, the end of this talk. So the cases in my book, just generally, I look at waste work, waste labor, what I was talking about just now, uh, used electronics or e-waste, at food waste um, and plastic scrap, which again will be my focus today. Um, other themes that have popped up, when again, which I'll talk about because China is really central to what's going on in the global waste economy right now. Waste activism, which is truly quite exciting, the way that you see transnational waste activism emerging. Um, there are a number of connections now between waste and climate change. I can talk about those in Q&A if, um, if you'd like. And then, of course, the trade in other used goods like textiles, cars, and so on that, that I mentioned, alluded to earlier. So kind of that's the overview of of the book and, and where I'm coming from in, when I start talking about this story of the connections forged through the trade in plastic waste between this decision made in Beijing in 2017 and what we can put out on the curb now for recycling. So um, how many people here have heard about something called Operation National Sword? Operation National Sword. Anyone know about China and its plastic scrap ban? So, if, yeah, you see, that's, called, that's actually Operation National Sword. It's a cool name. So that's, that's kind of where, where I really got involved in this, um, in this field. I worked with a student in 2013 who was doing her senior thesis on how plastic was dealt with on campus once it was thrown into the, the blue bins. And she found as she did her research that once it was picked up by the city of Berkeley, cleaned, put into bales, and picked up by brokers, that those brokers actually shipped that plastic to China. Now, this was a huge eye-opener for me. And in fact, increasingly, um, this became more and more visible to a lot of people, but only really visible to many people in 2017 when China decided to change this practice. And the, the chart here, which may be a little hard to read, shows uh, U.S. Um, exports or of waste, of plastic scrap on, its, on itself to China. The U.S. was not the only country doing this. Australia, my home country, did it a lot. The U.K., my other home country also. <laughs> um, and even the European Union, though they're always a little reluctant to admit this. And <laughs> so you see this massive increase, which coincides, starts really with China's entry into the World Trade Organization. And that was the time that China started this massive economic boom, massive GDP growth, and massive demand for inputs such as plastics into this growing manufacturing center. And China simply did not produce enough on its own. So it started to make sense on both sides for them to start taking plastic scrap from us, and, and especially as the initial deals were supposed to be of high-quality, clean fairly easily recyclable plastic. Quick footnote here, plastic is very hard to recycle on the whole. It can be, and certain kinds are, but it downgrades very quickly. So it's not the same to recycle plastic as it is other kinds of scrap. I should add, not only did China take plastic scrap and paper and textiles, but what we think of as the good scrap as well, aluminum, copper, other kinds of metals. So basically it became um, the place that, that took and reprocessed the things we throw away. 
Um, and some people call it the world's dumping ground, other people call it like an entrepreneurial sector, it was a bit of both. Um, but what happened essentially for us is that it made sense because rather than build expensive recycling infrastructure here, we could just basically pile the scrap into the shipping containers that had brought consumer goods from China. So rather than sending them back empty, they could go back filled with the scrap to Chinese industries and ports that would actually use them because not only did we recycle, um, outsource our recycling, but as we all know, we also outsourced our manufacturing. So it's not like there would be a lot of use for these scrap materials here in this country. So it was a very good deal on both sides of the equation until... Um, actually, you can see China first tried to do this in 2013, but on March, 21st, on March 1st, 2018, following an announcement in July of 2017, this ended. I'd been following, I was writing the book at the time, so I'd been following the trade magazines and papers in the waste field, and you know, there was a lot of muttering about something was coming down the pipe from China in terms of restricting plastic and paper scrap imports. But no one in the industry was really um, ready for what Beijing announced. And this came from really the very highest level of the Politburo. This was um, the Ministry of, of the Environment and other really high-level actors in Beijing that made this decision. And they said in July 2017 that they were just simply going to stop all imports of these kinds of scrap unless they met very tight contamination limits. And this is important. So this is people talk about it being a ban. It was actually a, a crackdown to the point that we couldn't actually meet those standards. And this was huge. This was a seismic shock for the recycling industry. Uh, the Institute for Scrap Recycling Industries, aka ISRI, talked about the ban having a devastating impact on the recycling industry, loss of tens of thousands of jobs. That has not happened. Um, and the closure of many recycling businesses throughout the United States. And indeed, there has been a huge shift in, in the landscape. Um, CalRecycle referred to it as the end of recycling as we know it. And that's also been true. And um, certainly at the, on the industry side, but it's been not just the shock and devastation, but many people in the industry and beyond have seen this as a great opportunity for many reasons to change our recycling practices and to change our use of the sort of plastics that have contributed to this crisis. So Operation National Sword, which one of my students who, um, whose chi Chinese is a native language told me once the characters actually stand for sharp sword at the gates of our country, <laughs> which is an even better title, but um, National Sword has become the shorthand for this event, this decision by China that just caused shifts and waves, ripples right through this industry that continue to play out today. Um, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about at the end of the talk happened a week ago. So it really has been this ongoing saga and really, really interesting to follow. It's been really exciting to be kind of in on the ground floor. So why did Beijing do this? Um, the announcement itself contained the phrase, no more foreign garbage. And so in many ways, people say, well, Beijing just decided that China would no longer take foreign garbage and be seen as the world's dumping ground. There are environmental reasons for this, that obviously China's going through a huge pollution crisis, that a lot of this plastic was just piling up and not being used, though I will say that more of it was, a lot more of it was being recycled there than it is here. Recycling rates here are notoriously low for plastics. And 
There are many, there's this documentary that has, I don't know how many people have seen it beyond the festival circuit, but Plastic China is um, directed by a, Jap a Chinese documentary maker who's well known for making these uh, documentaries about waste and environmental conditions in China. And it was um, released in China. It's also shown, as I said, on the film, on the film festival circuit here. Um, and it was seen again by high-ranking politicians in the Politburo, and they were kind of appalled because a lot of it is about the ways in which foreign plastics, and you can see the labels and they show like the piles of plastic trash, within the piles of plastic trash are actually being um, uh, reprocessed. So while I say, yeah, China took it in, actually a lot more of it was recycled than it would have been here, the big question is under what conditions? And the conditions of informal labor that were being revealed by documentaries such as this were uh, very harmful and very harmful to China's international um, a reputation. So there is that environmental concern, straightforward, don't want to be the world's dumping ground. Uh, then also this question of, of China's international reputation, that it um, be seen as a power, as a rising superpower, not only in, econ in economic terms, but also as setting an example. In the last decade or so, China's been taking a lead as the U.S. has pulled back in global climate policy. It is trying to establish networks of green cities, a sort of display for the rest of the world about how green it is and therefore you know, how good an international uh, citizen it is. So there was that motive happening as well, as well as some domestic politics. Uh, Beijing... Um, it's not as straightforward as getting rid of the plastic scrap. Um, oh, this is our stepping. Is it okay if I just talk like this? I'm going to have to just hold it. Um, so uh, China was actually planning not just to stop using recycled scrap, but to replace foreign scrap with plastic scrap of its own. So in a sense, there could be no real change to environmental quality. And that really actually irritated the Chinese companies who were using the recycling. They wanted the foreign scrap. It was um, better quality than what was produced domestically. So they subsequently have re relocated very quickly to Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam, which is an another part of the story. And are actually moving into the U.S. market, at least um, have been. So... This was a very um, sort of, uh, this was a big, big change, a big political change in, in global recycling and also made us very aware of how much we really had dropped the ball on recycling at home or even really trying to reduce the use of, of disposable plastics. And that has become kind of the focal, one of the focal points of what's happened next. Um, I'm always telling my students, by the way, because everyone's so very concerned about single-use disposable plastics and bottles and straws and so on. And I think they assume that, that we, uh, my generation and above, were equally responsible, if not more so. And I keep having to tell them that for me, and I'm in my early 50s, to say, I, you know, plastic straws were a huge treat when I was growing up. I mean, my goodness, we had paper straws. And no, we, um, we didn't always drink water out of plastic bottles. We just kind of didn't drink water. <laughs> <laughs> I was very impressed at how hydrated you all are. So this is good. Uh, it's always a bit of a surprise to them. Just a, a little aside about that. What we've seen next is, is more landfill, more landfill and incineration. That's been the dominant um, trend as, um, as, as National Sword unfolded. Um, also some um, 
policy change across the United States and the industrialized world. Many, many communities have changed what they will pick up. Many communities will no longer take the lower quality plastics. Glass has been a collateral damage in this whole um, picture. We can still recycle glass here. We have a facility um, up in Sonoma, I think, that will still take it. But in a lot of the rest of the country, facilities have closed down. Glass is awfully expensive to ship. It's so heavy. There aren't that many uses for it. So... Um, uh, municipalities that are facing these massive costs are actually having to um, are just cutting things like glass out of the recycling stream. And just to put it in, in perspective, uh, pre, prior to National Sword, say in 2012 and parts times when the, the trade was at its peak, you would get $300 a ton of plastic for shipping from Chinese brokers. So municipalities are making huge amount of money from that that helped bolster a lot of their trash collection initiatives. Now that costs money, like $70 to $100 per ton to get rid of the same amount of plastic, and that is to take it to landfill and pay the landfill fees. And this is actually resulting in a lot of conflicts. Uh, my sister lives in New Bedford or near New Bedford, Massachusetts, and there the local waste company, who are local people, it's a small company, is suing the city um, to get out of a 10-year contract because the city will not pay the extra, to, to charge the city an extra $160,000 a year, and New Bedford is not a big place, to maintain trash collection, has actually threatened to cut off all trash collection. That's kind of a, an extreme move and unlikely to happen, but that's kind of where it's going, and that sort of legal conflict is also unfolding in many communities around the country. So this has been something that has really shaken up recycling markets, and they have not yet recovered. On the positive side, there's been a lot more public awareness um, this has also been driven by public concern about plastics in the oceans as well, which we know is a huge issue. But the other thing that happened right away is that plastics were um, diverted to other Asian countries. As I mentioned, Chinese companies started shifting to other parts of Southeast Asia. The wonders of global capitalism led this to happen very quickly. And very soon, um, countries like Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand were being overwhelmed with uh, plastic from um, the US, UK, and Australia, and other countries. So here you see over time sort of the, the changing value and locations of, of where the plastic scrap went. And while in China there was something of an infrastructure and industry and um, areas willing to take this plastic and actually capable of dealing with it, that was not the case so much in Malaysia and Thailand and Vietnam. So in 2019 through 20, late 2018 through 2019, these countries gradually closed the doors to plastic scrap shipments. And that again sort of pushed for another wave of effort in the US and other countries, both for recycling but also to come up with ways of controlling um, the use of plastics, especially single use consumer plastics. So, Malaysia in May 2019, in fact, um, their new environment minister announced that they were going to actually start shipping um, the plastic scrap back to where it came. I'm not actually sure whether this happened or not. I'm going to have to track that down. But that was a big announcement and led to a lot of acclaim from activists and other um, governments around the world who wanted to change this whole practice and really highlighted the environmental justice issue of, of this problem. 
So that left us in late 2019 with very few international options. So uh, we had to start thinking about what would be next for recycling around the world. And um, I'll talk through a few of these, these options. Um, one thing I will say is that we actually haven't stopped shipping waste overseas. That is actually still ongoing. Some countries like Turkey are taking more and more. Um, uh, Latin America, I think Argentina recently uh, lifted restrictions about importing scrap, which meant it could potentially take this as well. A couple of other countries in Latin America have followed suit. And there's just a hint of a trend. It's a tiny hint of a trend that the UK might start taking this waste. There's a little bit of a shift in the numbers that makes me wonder. I'm not the only person. To, I've heard the, the, the woman who's the president of ISRI, the scrap recycling industry, mention the UK in the list of countries that they were talking to about taking this. So who knows? Um, Brexit just, just unfolds in so many interesting ways. Um, but what's next? And I think we all know recycling is, is, is challenged. It's challenged in the best of times in terms of actually turning what we throw away back into something valuable. We only recycle, and by this I mean put into the blue bin 10% of the plastics that, that we use. So we're still dealing with massive flows of plastics and paper, et cetera, going into landfills. So what have we been trying to do? We've been trying to rebuild domestic recycling infrastructure and markets. As um, one of my colleagues in this field, Adam Minter, who's just written a, a fabulous new book too, uh, has pointed out that recycling is not a function of our values. Much as we believe that we should be recycling and it is a value of environmentalists, uh, it is not driven by technology, like available technology to recycle products efficiently. It is driven by markets for the recycled goods. And if those markets do not exist, like the global market in China no longer exists, then the whole system breaks down. So one of the focuses is finding markets for, for plastic scrap and so on. And, and there's been some forward motion here. Uh, companies such as Coca-Cola, Unilever have started talking about using more secondary plastics in their manufacturing. So that's all to the good. Uh, as I mentioned earlier too, and that's the, the bottom left photo there, Chinese companies are moving in um, to the U.S. and other markets to build recycling facilities here to ship cleaned plastic scrap back. There are a number of things, not just coronavirus, but some other things that are really interrupting this process right now. But um, I can also talk about those in Q&A, but I touched on them at the end of this talk. Um, then we've seen also some closures of particular facilities. The, again, a little hard to see probably, but the second from the left is a sign put up on the, um, you know, the, the, the redemption centers that we'd see. Uh, I know the Safeway parking lot on um, Shattuck and Rose had one for a long time, run by this one company, Replanet. And for many of us, these are a bit of an eyesore. There was like piles of bottles and cans, people bringing them in their shopping carts. A lot of people were, were kind of involved in some dubious transactions around all of this, but they shuttered very quickly. They just closed overnight around California. And that actually stripped a lot of people of, who live very marginalized lives of a certain source of income very quickly. And 
haven't had a chance to look into those impacts yet, but it has been, it was something, it was an impact on, on the global, on the California recycling, this is the West Coast recycling practices and, and, and on the people who work in this field in this country that was quite significant. So again, it's, it's continuing to unfold all of these, these developments. This was also very recent. Uh, but another area where we're seeing some action is in creating and amending international law around plastics and the shipment of plastics to and from uh, different countries. The, of course, the quantity of plastics in the oceans is partially a driver for this, and there's been a lot of conversation about maybe we need some kind of international plastics convention. And this is one of those conversations that's ongoing. It takes a long while to gear up to actual action globally. Uh, there's been some talk. There's a lot of, there's the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. There's a lot of marine pollution conventions that could also handle um, plastic scrap and waste. But where the international, international NGOs and, and governments like Norway, who are very much in favor of doing something like this, focused on a sort of little-known treaty uh, that regulates the international trade in hazardous waste, like your old-school industrial waste. And it's been kind of churning away in the background. It's a very weak treaty in many ways, but it's been doing its work as effectively as it can for a long time. It was um, entered in, it was created in 1989, and in last year, then all of a sudden, Norway announced that this was the place. We need to start thinking about plastic scrap as hazardous waste and ban the trade that way. So this has been another area where we've seen movement forward in addressing this problem and addressing plastic waste by saying, let's stop the trade at the global level, and that's going to force countries to actually take action and deal with it themselves. So that's another way in which we've looked at that. kinds of problems with it. And there's going to be some challenges to say, well, from countries that are, that are not allowed to import plastic scrap now to say, actually, this isn't waste. It's something that has value. We can actually use it and resell it. We can reprocess it and resell it. And for me, that's interesting because what it does is, is, is sort of show how difficult the distinction is between what is a waste and what is scrap. Like what is something that has no value that we throw away we don't want to deal with and something that does have value. And plastics are right on the cusp of that distinction. And I think that's something in the waste world that we encounter all the time at different levels. I'm going to give another little example of that, which is a friend of mine, high school friend of mine, who was in, uh, worked for the International Red Cross and her husband worked for the, um, the British uh, Foreign Aid uh, ministry, and they were in Zambia, and they were unpacking. They just moved there. They lived in all kinds of exotic places, um, but they'd moved to Zambia and were unpacking their boxes. They had a whole bunch of cardboard boxes, and someone came and knocked on the door and wanted the boxes to take the boxes, so they negotiated a price, and my friend and her husband thought this was the price uh, that they were going to pay this person for taking the cardboard. And in fact, the person taking the cardboard, that was the price he was going to pay them <laughs> for the cardboard. So one of the little kind of, that's been sort of a little, a theme that's really critical in understanding both these very micro um, transactions, but also these huge transactions, the movement of plastic wastes, the shipping of plastic, is it waste or is it scrap? used tires, are they waste or are they scrap, from one part of the world to another. Electronic waste is another area where we have a lot of these conversations. So international law is maybe one place this could be um, 
negotiated and arbitrated. There's no fixed decision. The current decision is that plastics are waste, but there's all kinds of ways, maybe through the World Trade Organization, that this could be contested. So it's an ongoing and very interesting struggle for those of us who are interested in international environmental law as well. And then finally, moves to restrict single-use consumer plastics in cities and towns. And here I'll go from Berkeley back to China. I'm sure, how many of you are aware of the Berkeley single-use foodware and litter reduction ordinance that is coming into effect? Yeah. I haven't really noticed the changes yet. I have a fabulous graduate student right now who has an army of undergraduate researchers who are going around and doing the surveys. They did a whole bunch of baseline data surveys about how many plastic cups and lids and accessories were being given out before this ordinance came into effect in January and are moving on to do the secondary um, measurement once the, the um, measure's been in effect for a while. But essentially, um, in January of the last, last month, that um, all regular plastic accessories should be replaced with compostable plastics and to charge 25 cents. Um, businesses charge 25 cents for any requested disposable cup. Yes. <laughs> the plastic ones, though. I think the, paper, I think the paper ones are okay. No, they're not. No, they're not. I should know that. But it's an interesting charge. It's not a tax. It's, the businesses get to keep it. It's an incentive for them. But it is something that might cre change, create significant behavior change. And, in fact, that's something we're going to look at, both how the businesses themselves implement this charge and whether or not it actually changes consumers' behavior in significant ways. Is this enough or is it too much? What's going on? Um, and then in July of this year, Eden establishments must use reusable plates, cutlery, etc. And that might sound okay, fine. You know, some holes in the wall are going to like get rid of their their tables, or maybe some will add some. But it involves dishwashers, and it involves McDonald's. There are two McDonald's in Berkeley, and actually the owner is the same franchisee, and he's really interested in in this. He got very involved and is supportive, actually, of this measure, but. McDonald's has a dishwasher, but it's only for washing the things that it cooks with. It has no dishwasher for any um, non-disposable plates and so on. So that's also going to be another sort of interesting angle as to how this unfolds. So hyper-local, I'm really excited to be involved in that particular project, um, really just supervising my fabulous student. Uh, but... <laughs> Um, that's, that's, going to be, that's going to be interesting to find out what happens there. But then, this is the two weeks ago, uh, Janu uh, China moved itself to ban single-use disposable plastics. And by that, the government is going to ban the production and use of plastic utensils, single-use straws, and products containing microbeads by the end of this year. <laughs> and ban the use of single-use plastic bags in major cities by the end of this year and across the country by 2022. Also, a complete ban on plastic scrap imports, which is actually a little bit of a blow because, in fact, one of the directions that people were looking at was to actually create facilities that would clean the plastics to the required specifications and actually ship them as useful scrap, not just as contaminated, um, mixed uh, bales of plastic that were the problem. Um, it was announced by the National Development and Reform Commission as well as the Ministry of the Environment. Um, it's really unclear, of course, this happened a week ago, two weeks ago, what the impacts will actually be. Um, you're not going to be surprised that there's some skepticism about China's ability to enforce this. Again, it, it will involve Beijing really uh, tackling uh, local 
authorities and their willingness to enforce this, but uh, people say a lot about the ability of, a, of an authoritarian or quasi-authoritarian government to enforce environmental regulations that is quite an interesting, again, debate within the environmental community about the utility of democracy at certain times, which I have which I try and steer away from that particular topic. But nonetheless, China's a strong state in the way that you might look at Sweden as a strong state. And that Sweden has also been able to enact measures that have radically reduced its municipal, its flow of municipal solid waste into um, landfill and other undesirable disposable, disposal um, routes. So we're not sure... Um, what the enforcement capabilities of, of Beijing are going to be, or even, again, just to that theme, how much, um, how much they're willing to violate people's rights more, even more in terms of, of dealing with this problem. Is that worth it? And, of course, it's all up in the air right now uh, with the coronavirus. I'm, I'm going to a plastic recycling conference, and I think in a couple of weeks to find out more about this, and unfortunately, I think probably the Chinese delegations won't make it, but again, we have yet another unfolding global crisis <laughs> that is distracting attention from this. Well, it means I can follow it from kind of under the radar screen. So we don't, under, but under the radar, I should say, but we don't know really what the impacts will be. This is really new, but it's interesting to see China again taking the stance about we are not a dumping ground. We are committed to cleaning up our environment in a way that probably makes a, a stronger reputational statement than will necessarily be with action on the, on the national level. So do plastics, discarded plastics, have a global future? I don't know the answer to that specifically. I would say yes, but I don't know in what form. Will we continue sort of shipping plastics sort of, under the, again, under the radar um, to countries that will take them? Do we keep just dumping them here at home? Do we come up with rules and regulations that will actually create a legitimate plastic scrap trade um, in the way that many people are pushing for a legitimate electronics trade with proper labeling um, and proper product design that will make it easy to disassemble and recycle those products? That's, again, something that we've been talking about in the electronic waste field. Uh, but there's no doubt that wastes in general are going to remain globalized and become even more so. Um, I think one of the really interesting pieces of this is that it's no longer an issue of... We tend to look at it here as like the rich north dumping on the poor south and the poor south not doing anything with it. Well, in fact, the picture when you actually look at waste movements is very different. There's a huge south-south waste trade, like waste going all kinds, scrap and so on. Uh, from one poor country to a medium-income country or vice versa. And there's evidence that a lot of it is actually being reused, refurbished, and resold. It's not all being dumped or burnt in, like, hellish scrapyards in, in Ghana. In fact, a lot of it's being dealt with in, in thriving markets and, and store facilities and repair facilities. So there's a lot of interesting developments here that we really need to fully understand and to understand that waste are going to carry on moving around the world. It's how do we make that safe for the people who are assembling them. So there's a lot of pieces of that puzzle that make this field so intensely interesting to look at. For me, if it was just that question of stopping the north dumping on the south, it would be a lot less interesting to be spending the last five years of my life and the next 20 years of my career on this. But I'm finding that, that in fact, all of these dynamics make it intensely fascinating. 
People often ask me what you should recycle. I don't always know exactly, but I can, I can always take a guess. But this comes from an earlier rule that, that the Chinese government put in in Shanghai uh, that enforces um, citizens to separate their waste into wet, dry, and hazardous. So the saying, if a pig can eat it, it goes into the wet bin. If a pig cannot, it is dry waste. If a pig is likely to die from eating it, the waste is hazardous. And if you could sell it and buy a pig with the funds, it is recyclable waste. So there you go. So I will stop there. Um, thank you for listening. I'm happy to take questions. Any answers? You can follow me on Twitter. Um, I know that there are people circulating with microphones, I think. Yes. yes. Moving the waste from one country to another, it doesn't going to solve the problem of climate change. You know, where, with all this plastic you're mm -hmm. talking about. And another thing, I just want to let you know I received an email from Israel. A chemist woman came up with uh, making a pl plastic-like material that can dissolve in water. But mm -hmm. you can use it as plastic, but it's not... Uh, but once you want to get rid of it, just put it in the water, it will dissolve. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a lot of alternatives to plastics coming up. I think, I think one of the concerns is, a, is sort of about that issue. It's like how can it's been... I think the holy grail is to find something that is just as functional as plastic, or at least almost as functional, but not as dangerous. And we managed to do that with um, ozone-depleting substances. We found a substitute that was not ozone-layer-depleting that worked. We're still looking for that for plastics, but there's a ton of innovation going on, and, and, it, is, and it is important not just from a waste perspective, but also from a climate change perspective, that um, plastics from cradle to grave, from extraction of the... Uh, fossil fuels used to create plastics and the, the pollution caused by the petrochemicals industry right the way through to manufacture and disposal, uh, plastics have a huge carbon footprint. And I think that's something that, that we're only really starting to understand. Um, has there been um, any discussion at the international level as regard to not just plastics, but waste in general um, with the use of space? Yeah. There's actually a, there's already a treaty on 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 um, outer space that has something about satellite debris in it. <laughs> but that's so waste. We can't really. We've already um, put as much waste as we can into outer space. <laughs> so a lot of satellite debris and so on. So that is something that that is specifically not being discussed. If you want me to talk a bit more generally about international regulation of waste and governance of waste that um, there's not been a lot. Uh, there's very little. I was talking with someone about this the other day that it's really waste has fallen in between the, the, um, the in, in terms of the, the most direct place would be the World Bank and aid agencies actually to deal with, with waste pile up in developing countries which is one of the big issues that we're seeing as people urbanize and start using consumer goods and it falls between immediate needs and long-term planning. I'm finding that, too, as I'm increasingly looking at disaster waste as another project. And, again, that sort of falls through the cracks of not being immediate relief and not being long-term construction. So very little in terms of that kind of development. 
some, as I mentioned, in terms of plastic waste and, and shipping hazardous waste, but it's, it's been slow to get onto the agenda. So, um, but the waste in space, it's a thing. It's a real problem. And I doubt that we'll be shipping any more up there unless we figure out how to get nuclear waste up there, which would also be very problematic. Um, yes. <laughs> you were talking, thanks so much for your presentation. It was excellent. Um, you were talking about single-use disposable laws mm -hmm. here in Berkeley, right? Um, I recognize that that's not going to happen uh, with the current administration on a federal level. But um, since California is the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world, um, is there any uh, regulation underfoot at the state level? Mm -hmm. I will blank on the exact details, but one thing about the U.S. is it's one of the countries that does not have has next to no federal legislation around waste at all. The Superfund, hazardous waste, nuclear waste, and, but about recycling, apart from the EPA maintaining data on it, that's really all. And interestingly, it's one of the few parts of the EPA that has not disappeared from the website. It's, it's interesting. Everyone, I, my theory is everyone is concerned about waste. It's one of the, no matter what. But um, yes, California, last semester, last semester at the end of last legislative year had two awesome bills going through to create a circular economy to really cut to have zero waste goals across the state and to cut the use of plastics and single-use disposables and those went through a very complicated process of amendment and so on they were quite likely to get through but we simply got um it got out of time it was being debated on the very last night of um of the state assembly meeting, and unfortunately, right before was an anti-vaxxer bill, and that wound up taking up all the oxygen um, from the room and left little time. But it can be revived, and there's a ballot measure around these issues that's coming up, and will hopefully be on the ballot in uh, November, so that would be something to vote for. So California is really being very proactive. Uh, yeah. I'm letting the folks with microphones choose. Um, could you comment on the problem with cardboard waste? It's, you know, in the oh. enormous increase with the Internet commerce, et cetera. Oh, yeah. I don't know that any of us really have a handle on, on the Amazon business. Um, yes. The one good thing is that cardboard is still very recyclable. Clean boxes are still actually shipped to China, at least for now. I think plastics is the one thing they're targeting. Uh, I find that... Um, Amazon is just sort of changing the way we live in so many ways and is so unaccountable that it's very hard to think about what to do. Um, so I do suggest from the consumer point is to make sure that you do recycle the boxes, flatten them, and remove any tape <laughs> or labels. That means that they can easily be recycled. There's more of a market for cardboard and paper, but I think so that end is... is probably more a matter of like they're reopening some pulp and paper mills in the Midwest and that's good for local economies maybe less more problematic for the environment there but there's things going on but just in terms of the sheer consumerism and the things that come through my uh, stepdaughter who's 16 gets plenty of makeup shipped to us and I found one box that was packed full of polystyrene peanuts and I'm like who does this anymore for like two little little cardboard things of something expensive and uh that, to me, is, is like a, a packaging is just the single largest use of plastic of cardboard on the consumer level and does need some very serious attention. Hello. Um, 
I'm not sure if this is in the scope of your uh, study, but I read not too long ago, I don't remember the details, maybe you, if you know you could uh, share those. I read that some, there's a scientific uh, effort to create some sort of an enzyme or something magical that would actually eat mm -hmm. microplastics in the ocean mm -hmm. and so we can use technology to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. Did I imagine that or do you know more about that? Or <laughs> No, there are definitely ways people are, are shooting to develop those sorts of enzymes. There is definitely, there's a lot of stuff happening. There's actually a pretty huge startup culture around all of this, both in terms of novel ways to um, incinerate or break down plastic waste in safe ways and also uh, to create types of plastic that doesn't need that in the first place. Yeah, uh, the problem is it's really hard to scale up um, and expensive. And I think people are, uh, sh probably should be a bit concerned about rushing these sorts of solutions, implementing them before we really know what's going to happen. But yeah, there are, there's plenty of people working away. And again, that's why I meant like Operation National Sword was a catalyst for a lot of exciting research and so on that's ongoing around dealing with these things. Hi. If I can squeeze in two-part question. Mm -hmm. You just uh, told someone to recycle our boxes, but make sure to take the labels and the tape off. Mm -hmm. uh, my expectation is that 95% of the boxes that are recycled have the label and the tape on them. Mm -hmm. So what happens then? That's part one. And part two is, in all this stuff we're talking about in recycling, um, what are the implications? This, I'm sort of following up on the question there in terms of climate change. Might mm -hmm. we find that, yes, we can recycle this plastic, but the overall impact in terms of transporting it, processing it, and all that, the carbon footprint of all that is such that we would have been better off from a carbon standpoint just throwing it into a landfill? Yep. Well, the boxes, yeah, most of them probably do have the tape still attached. Um, Things don't have to be entirely clean or uncontaminated, but I encourage people to make the best effort possible because if there's too much tape and so on, yeah, then it'll just be thrown out. And for the infamous pizza box example, which is uh, sort of a very famous one, is you know the greasy sort of food-stained uh, pizza uh, box. If the bottom of it is uncontaminated, you rip off the top and you can throw that in the landfill and you can still recycle the bottom of the box. But that sort of greasy uh, pizza box is not um, welcomed by the recycling community. Compost. Yes. Why, well, I guess, yeah, you could compost it. I'm not sure about backyard piles of compost, but you're right. Yeah, I always forget that part. I'm, yeah. I think I always like go straight to the compostable plastic forks, which are not actually very compostable at all when I think about compost and this kind of waste, but that is, that is a good point. Um, yes, so what was the other thing? Climate change. Yeah, climate change looking at plastics just simply says it's serious. We should really stop, um, stop uh, using plastics, making plastics. There's so many things that are wrong with it. In waste in general... Um, Recycling is being really encouraged in a lot of ways because simply, for example, extracting metals from old cell phones and so on is so much less intensive, pollution intensive and carbon intensive than um, mining them. So there's, there are real reasons that you could save there. Uh, the other thing to think about with waste is that I think um, landfills emit methane. Ultimately, methane gas from landfill, it sounds like it's not very much, but it's something like 3 to 4% of overall global carbon greenhouse gas emissions because methane is pretty potent. So 
there are ways in which you can you have to deal with landfills. And you can actually cap them, exploit the methane pretty easily. It's fairly safe, done correctly, to generate energy. So that all these connections are quite quite important. But plastics are bad for the climate, full stop. And I think those, I didn't, don't have my slide with those studies, but um, if you're interested, the city, Center for International Environmental Law put out a really good study on this last, uh, late last year. Two things. Um, the first is China was taking our newspapers. Mm -hmm. uh, are they still doing that? Not newspapers, no, no, no okay. just, um, just cardboard. And the other, over at the Berkeley Nature Center, Mm -hmm. We show the children, um, it's a field trip for them, but one of the things we show them are pictures of the waterfowl with their mouths into them, you know, when you carry a, uh, a beer package or a soda package, mm -hmm. the, the, the waterfowl wind up putting their nose through the hole mm -hmm. in that thing that mm -hmm. we carry them in. And I just wonder if in your travels through the plastic industry, whether there's any effort to get these people that mm -hmm. produce this to stop producing it because it's bad for the environment, mm -hmm. it's bad for the oceans, our fowl mm -hmm. are disappearing, and very, very yeah. largely due to that. Yeah, I think, I think that product redesign is so essential in so many ways, both to create that, um, to be more safe, but I don't know of any direct efforts around that in particular nor about the sort of hard plastics that go with water bottles, plastic water bottles and changing that design. Some changes have happened. Um, a little rim on some yogurt pots was actually designed so that animals who got their snout caught in them in landfills could actually have some leverage to pull it off, which is kind of sad, but I really encourage people to suggest to companies that's something citizens can do, is say, hey, stop, stop doing this. And for plastic water bottles, um, yeah, leave the cap on. I had this long conversation. This is what Terry Gross was super obsessed with. It was a two-hour long conversation that I had with her the day before the interview. And we went on for, she went on for about half an hour about plastic bottle lids. And I said, I didn't really know exactly what you should do with them. So the next day I talked to both the head of ISRI and my graduate student, and they both told me that you actually leave them on. They've got some equipment for dealing with that. But it's like, <laughs> that was, it was like taking this really terrifying exam, I have to say. It was... <laughs> about um, well, they shouldn't technically be on, but if you leave them, if you take them off, there's much more chance that they'll float around the general rubbish stream and wind up in oceans and streams, and they're intensely dangerous. Um, and so in the re but if they get to recycling facilities, uh, with the bottle cap still on, they have special equipment to remove them. Uh, yeah, again, not sure how effective that all is, but that's actually the advice. I, I do it just because if it's going to wind up in the landfill, I'd rather the caps not escape into the, into the water. As a college professor, could you comment on the level of interest and uh, commitment that the next generation has towards mm -hmm. these problems? Yeah. Oh, I would say from, I mean, again, my, my audience are Berkeley students, so I found, I found that the interest is becoming tremendous. Uh, I've been in this field, I've been at Berkeley 20 years, so you see these Thing, these issues move through, and food has been one, and we've got a very strong constituency there, but the interest in waste and doing something about it is, is huge. There's a huge... There's, um, 
there's a, a student environmental resource center on campus that has zero waste group, and I would say there's probably about 100 students involved in those. I'm starting a, a waste course, um, hopefully in spring 2021, and a ton of people are interested in, in taking that, but I'm really noticing a huge commitment. I think it's partly just the thrill of like, Oh, a group of students I worked with pulled on the hazmat suits and did a waste inventory up at Clark Kerr campus the other day. They were just, it was life-changing. They couldn't stop talking about it when I saw them. Uh, but yeah, there's, there's a huge interest and commitment. There's also uh, interest and commitment on the part of the waste industry to making sure young people come in and be innovative and start getting involved in resource recovery and recycling as well. But yeah, I see, I, see, I see true commitment. And the fact that you see those water bottles everywhere, <laughs> often like under my podium when I'm lecturing, there's like a whole little collection. But that is something that has become natural for all students, not just kind of my enviro students. But I've seen, I've seen that everywhere, and I think that's, that's a positive. So I think they're internalizing it. I think they see it as something they can handle as much as climate, climate change is not. So... That is something that they're doing. So when we recycle today, put things in, in the recycling bins and they get hauled off, what still has viable markets? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I assume aluminum cans are still... Aluminum cans are good. They're, they're perennially good. Uh, let's see. Um, the plastic ones and twos, specifically if you just put those in, I strongly advise taking the fours through sevens and not recycling those. Although, um, if you bundle up the plastic bags and take them, Target, I think, takes them back. There's things that they can do with those. It's not unrecyclable, but they just can't be mixed. Uh, so those can be re taken and reused. They are recycled here and, and reprocessed here, ones, the ones and twos. Um, paper, to some extent. Uh, I mean, sometimes e-waste is such a complex stream here. I don't know whether a lot of that, depending on where it goes, gets actually recycled, but that should contain value. Um, but yeah, so quite a lot still does, but it's a lot less than it used to be, and there's a lot more reluctance on the part of recycling companies to take anything but the most clean, the most valuable, say plastics in particular, so that they can actually resell. The rest they just don't want to deal with at all. Hi, so yes. the, um, what, what has happened with the big floating waste out in the ocean, what's the latest there? And the other question that I have, this doesn't work for a lot of people in apartments, but if you have any garden, a little worm cafe works terrifically with all the food waste. It just mm -hmm. makes the best soil. Yeah, it's great. Yep. Yeah, vermiculture. <laughs> yeah, um, so, well, oh, the plastic waste in the oceans, uh, not really, we're not really there in terms of taking it out. We're trying to stop it going in. Uh, there's a lot of evidence in terms of beach cleanups that's become something that's very important. I think one of the, the positive things with all the plastic bag restrictions is that not only do you have anecdotal evidence from people who do beach cleanups that they're seeing fewer and fewer of them showing up, but there have been studies that being done that have looked at sort of the shallow ocean floor around areas that have the bands, and there's just far fewer floating around there. Yeah, so, I meant the big floating island that they mm -hmm. talked about that's larger than Texas or whatever. Uh, yeah, it's... it's um, 
the the difficult thing about that is it's not actually visible trash. I think that there's there's some, but it's really a bit of a misnomer. What it is is broken down plastics, which are often broken down into tiny sort of microbeads, which are the ones that don't directly kill wildlife by having them choke on it, but um, but are very persistent and are the ones that can kind of bioaccumulate and get through into tissue and and be transmitted across generational lines too. Um, but the plastic that is whole is still there and still an issue. It tends to be more around the coastal areas as well, and that's just, it is just um, a terrible thing. And we also realize that a lot of it is coming off the coasts of Southeast Asia and South Asia, and what I've noted is a lot of effort being put there to build facilities to stop that happening. Um, I have uh, seen references that San Francisco Recology is like the most high-functioning uh, recycler in the nation, and that that is supposedly because everyone in San Francisco pays a fee uh, for the recycling, so they have a, a positive market. Mm -hmm. Is this a solution anyone else is talking about, or is it mm -hmm. economically unviable in the United States? Um, I I think we all pay a fair bit. Um, Recology is, yeah, it's a, it's a strong example. I think it has a strong um, community in San Francisco. It's still been um, scrambling. Uh, it's really trying to figure out where it's going to take everything. Um, they're actually, interestingly, quite difficult to talk to. I've <laughs> I had an interview with a reporter, someone who's doing a story, like I was doing some background research for KLW, and she's like, I got nothing out of them. So uh, the ecology center here is much more kind of open. You can, you can talk to them a little bit more. But, yeah, I'm, I'm still kind of getting to the bottom of ecology. Yeah. Not I'm saying that they're sinister. They're really good, but they're just um, not as forthcoming. And I think San Franciscans pay so much for so many things that I guess, you know, recycling is... I do think it's a model. You make people pay to get rid of things, but again, go back to that New Bedford example. And New Bedford is a relatively poor community. It's starting to turn the corner and get more, get its act together, get more vibrant, and suddenly to impose $160,000 annually on a city is going to bankrupt it pretty quickly. And if it's that passed on to the local community members, they're going to have a really hard time paying that as well. So it depends on, on how the costs are passed on. Okay, I'm getting the end signal. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.